We're going to continue in John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, please open there. There should be the verses up on the screen as well. There's an outline inside the bulletin, and there are printed messages at both exits. If you didn't get one coming in, you can get up and get one now if you'd like. And uh, we're going to be in John 11, 38 to 57. The messages are also on the church website and uh, in both printed and eventually in audio form as well. Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus is the setting for this with um, Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters. So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but... Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he also might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews but went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests... And the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. 
There's a familiar saying, seeing is believing. But in spiritual matters, that is not necessarily true. Sometimes skeptics will say, well, show me a miracle and I'll believe. But chances are, if you could produce one in front of their very eyes, they would come up with a naturalistic explanation or they would find some other reason to continue in their unbelief. Now, as we've seen repeatedly, John wrote his gospel and especially the signs in his gospel. That's what he calls the miracles. There are seven of them before the resurrection. He wrote his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. But not all in Jesus' day who saw his miracles in person, and as you know, not all who hear about or read the accounts of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels believe in him. The barrier to faith is our own uh, sinfulness, that we love our sin. In Romans chapter 1, Paul points out that God has given sufficient evidence of his power and of his divine attributes through the creation, through what he has made. But Paul says that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they want to hold on to their unrighteousness, so they suppress the evidence so that they don't have to come face to face with God. And they invent myths like evolution and other kinds of crazy things to dodge the reality of God so that they can continue in their sin. If ever there was a miracle that should have convinced people to fall on their face and say, Jesus is Lord, it would be the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He had been dead for four days, so as Martha rather... uh, sensitively points out, Lord, he's going to smell when they open the tomb. He was beginning to decompose. And yet when Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth, this dead man is made alive. It must have been quite a spectacle because he was still bound with the grave clothes and even it says had something over his face. So picture the horror movies, you know, the night of the living dead or something. And Here he comes staggering out of the tomb, and then Jesus tells those standing nearby, unbind him and let him go, and that must have freaked them out, you know, I got to go touch this guy, and you know, what if he's a zombie, what is is he? Uh, But here he is, alive and well, his flesh, of course, was not decayed, but was made perfectly whole, and it was an amazing display of God's power. And yet, it was an amazing display of the hardness of human hearts. Because in spite of witnessing this miracle, some, it is given, did believe. But others, it says, went to report to the authorities, the Jewish authorities, what Jesus had done. And rather than repenting and saying, we have been wrong about this man, Jesus. He is the Messiah. Instead, they intensify their efforts to kill him. Now in the narrative in verse 40, Jesus tells Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, 
you will see the glory of God. And so Jesus says, it is not seeing that results in believing, it is believing that results in seeing. But then we see those who saw the miracle, and rather than believing, they uh, did not believe, they rejected it. And so, as Paul says in Romans 1, their foolish hearts were darkened. And so we have this contrast here. The message is that if we believe in Christ, we will see the glory of God. But if we see miracles, and by seeing miracles, I'm not talking about necessarily seeing physical miracles today. I'm including if you see the miracles that are eyewitness reports in the New Testament, and you reject that, and you do not believe, then you will be hardened in your sin. So, seeing uh, does not result in believing. Believing results in seeing, but seeing without believing results in hardness of heart. So, let's look at the first half of that, and that is, if we believe in Christ, Jesus says we'll see the glory of God. Now, Jesus tells Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? And uh, scholars scratch their head and say, well, when did he say that to her? I believe he said that to her in verse 4 indirectly. In verse 4, Jesus told those who had reported to him from Martha and Mary that Lazarus was sick, uh, that this sickness, he said, is not to result in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God would be glorified by it. So he told the messengers, and indirectly then, they went and told that to Martha and to Mary. Jesus' aim in all of his ministry and all that he did was to glorify the Father. As you know, Jesus is the revelation of God's glory to us because in John 1.14, John said, The Word, that is the eternal Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what we will experience in heaven is to see the glory of Jesus with unveiled eyes. And it is going to be so spectacular and so enthralling that we have never experienced anything like it, to see Jesus in his glory. Now, what is God's glory? Well, God's glory is his essential and intrinsic splendor. And the Hebrew word has the idea of weight or heaviness, the the word kavod, for glory. It refers to God's worthiness, to his reputation, to his honor. And the emphasis in the Bible is on the glory of God as displayed in his attributes. Um, Calvin wrote this, The glory of God is when we know what he is. And then Calvin also observed, We never truly glory in him until we utterly discard our own glory. Whoso glories in himself glories against God. In other words, you will never glory in God until you lay aside your own good works and quit glorying in yourself and say, I am destitute, I am a sinner, and I must glory in God alone as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. 
Now, in this case, Martha's faith, Jesus said, will result in her seeing God's glory. And the way she would see God's glory is at the tomb, Jesus reveals his intimacy with the Father when he prays and God acts. And so she saw God's glory also in God's power in calling this decomposing corpse back to life and seeing her brother made whole again. In doing this miracle, Jesus is merely confirming what he claimed back in chapter 5 and verse 21. In John 5, 21, Jesus said, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. And then he added in verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And so Jesus, by raising Lazarus, is proving what he claimed. And that is someday he will speak the word, all of the dead, billions of dead from all of the centuries, no matter how they died, no matter how decomposed or disintegrated their bodies are, will be raised bodily and will stand before the throne of God for judgment, either for eternal condemnation or eternal life. But Jesus' claim to do that is uh, confirmed here, and it shows that he is both the author and giver of both physical life and of spiritual life. Now, we should apply Jesus' words to Martha in verse 40, where he says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. I think we can apply it in at least two ways. One way we can apply that is to join Moses in the great prayer that he prays in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. He says to God, I pray you, show me your glory. Do you pray that? God, show me Your glory. It's a remarkable prayer when you consider who was praying it and when he was praying it. You remember Moses had seen that display of God's glory at the burning bush, the bush that burned and was not consumed. And God spoke to him out of that bush and told him, I am who I am. And then Moses had gone back at God's commission into Egypt. And he had seen God's glory in the ten plagues as God did those miraculous Uh, deeds there in Egypt to deliver Israel. And then he had seen God's glory as Israel is all there at bottled up at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is coming against them. God parts the Red Sea. Israel walks through. God closes the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his army. And God delivered Israel. Moses had further seen God's glory when they go three days into the wilderness and there's no water. And God tells Moses to strike the rock and water gushes forth enough water to quench the thirst of two million refugees out in that barren Judean wilderness. And then he had seen God's glory as God opened up the heavens and rained manna every morning on the people, enough so that all were nourished and fed. I mean, isn't that enough? Just give me one of those incidents in my life and I'd say, Wow, I'm satisfied. I've seen the glory of God. 
Moses wasn't satisfied. He said, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And Paul says that the more we see God's glory, we are transformed from image to image into his glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 there. And when we see Jesus someday in his glory, 1 John 3 says, we will be changed into his likeness in that instant. And so the practical benefit is the more we now see of the glory of God and we see it as God opens our eyes to the truths of Scripture, the more we now see of God's glory, the more transforming it is for making us more holy, more like Jesus. Another way we can apply this, C.H. Spurgeon applied it to his congregation, excuse me, uh, by challenging them to believe God for the conversion of sinners, who he says they were as corrupt in their morals as Lazarus was in his body here. In other words, sometimes, if you're like me, you see somebody who is so far gone in sin, you tend to think, there's no way. There is no way that that person could ever be a Bible-believing, godly Christian. They're just so out there. And it's certainly true. If salvation is up to the will of man, there is no way. But the Bible is clear. Salvation is of the Lord. It is God who works the miracle of regeneration in human hearts. And if salvation is of the Lord, then he is mighty to save the chief of sinners, as he did in the Apostle Paul. It is significant that John calls Jesus' miracles Signs. He does it here in verse 47. Signs. Signs point to something else, to something beyond them. And Jesus' miracles, while, as I'll point out in a moment, they're literally true, they point to greater spiritual truth beyond the miracle itself. As a dead man whose body is undergoing corruption... Lazarus is a picture of sinners because Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 that we all were dead in our trespasses and sins. We all were being corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. Uh, We all were cut off from the life of God. Uh, So we were like Lazarus. Now, how much power did Lazarus have to raise himself from the dead? None. He's dead. It took the power of God through Jesus to speak the word, to call Lazarus from death to life. And that same thing is true every time a sinner is born again. God has to work in a supernatural way to impart life to a dead sinner. Now, maybe you're saying, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the sinner have to choose to believe in Jesus? Answer, yes, of course Every sinner must choose to believe in Jesus, but that's not the question. The question is, how can a person who is dead in his sins choose to believe in Jesus? And the biblical answer is clear. God must quicken that person from the dead. God must speak, Lazarus, come forth, and the person instantly responds. We saw this back in chapter 1 of John, verses 12 and 13. There, John says, But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, how could they believe in his name? Well, John explains. Who were born not of blood, that is, it wasn't their Jewishness, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, in other words, those who believe don't come up with the idea themselves, or they don't choose to believe by their own free will, because the human will is not free. It is fast bound in sin, and nature's night, as Charles Wesley wrote in that great hymn, And Can It Be?, But rather, the reason they choose to believe is because God quickens them. And so salvation is of God, and that way, all the glory goes to God. And so Spurgeon's application is, go to the Father in believing prayer and ask God to save those who are so far gone in sin that they're beginning to stink. (laughs) And you, you probably know people like that. You just go, oh boy, you know, to be around that person is morally corrupting because they are gone in their sin. Well, that's the very kind of people God raises from the dead, is sinners. And so we can pray. And if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Christ, there is a command in the Bible to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So call out to God for mercy Ask God for the faith to believe, and if we believe, Jesus says, we'll see the glory of God. The second truth here in our text, then, is that Jesus' miracles should result in faith in him as Savior and Lord. Now, I need to establish something here at this point, and that is that Jesus did, in fact, raise Lazarus from the dead. I mean, physically, That miracle happened. And John reported this miracle, as I said, in chapter 20, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you would have life in his name. Satan, however, always attacks at the essential. He goes for the jugular. And Satan knows that this miracle is so crucial that he's going to attack it. And sure enough, he does. We have many liberal critics of the Bible who say that this miracle could not have happened, that John fabricated it to make a spiritual point, but that it really didn't happen physically. They argue that John presents the raising of Lazarus as kind of a crux event that resulted in the uh, Jewish leaders determining, we're going to kill Jesus. And they say, well, if it's such a crucial event, then why do the other three Gospels not report it? And therefore, they come up with the idea that John fabricated the story so that he could illustrate some spiritual truth about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. For example, uh, William Barclay concludes, it does not really, excuse me, it does not really matter Whether or not Jesus literally raised a corpse to life in A.D. 30, I think he's off in his date, but he's also off in his statement. But it matters intensely that Jesus is the resurrection and the life for every man who is dead in sin and dead to God today. Do you get what he's saying? The physical doesn't matter. What matters is the spiritual point of the story. 
Well, you could take that same strange reasoning and say, it doesn't matter whether Jesus was physically raised from the dead or not. What matters is that we all have hope, that we all believe in spring and in the new life that comes every spring. And isn't it nice that we can have this wonderful hope whether or not Jesus was literally raised is irrelevant. That's that kind of reasoning. And the Apostle Paul shoots that down forcefully in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, look, folks, if Jesus is not bodily raised from the dead, quit being Christians. Because your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. We're we're wasting our time to be Christians if Jesus is not bodily raised. Now, it's clear that John here is not fabricating a fairy story or an Aesop's fable with a moral to it. He is reporting eyewitness testimony. He was there. There are details in the story that make it straightforward and realistic. Um, it, It reads like an eyewitness narrative, even with the little comment about Jesus, I mean, about Lazarus stinking. And probably when they rolled that stone away, everybody went, oh, boy, you know, that's strong. It's also interesting, in verse 47, Jesus' main critics in that day acknowledge that Jesus is doing many miracles. They don't deny it. They couldn't question that this man Lazarus was now alive. In fact, next week we'll see they're going to try and put him to death to get rid of the evidence. So here you have Jesus' critics in his day saying he's doing many miracles. And you have Jesus' critics in our day, 20 centuries later, saying he couldn't have done this miracle. (laughs) Uh, Who do you believe? I think I believe the critics in Jesus' day who acknowledged this was a literal miracle. And so we have here this historic account of Jesus raising a decomposing body to life. Now, it is a story with a point. It's a true story, but John wants to make a point through it. And the point he makes is that this miracle should cause you to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if, as is true, I hope, with most of you here, you already believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, this miracle should increase your faith in him. John views faith in Christ as both initial and then ongoing. It's initial at the point you come to the cross as a sinner and you cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I trust in him. That's the initial starting point of faith in Christ. But then it grows from there. Back in John chapter 1, we saw the disciples believing in Jesus. They make a great confession. We found the Messiah. You are the Son of God. All of that in chapter 1. Then you come to John chapter 2, and Jesus turns the water into wine. And we read in chapter 2, verse 11, This beginning of his signs, there's that word again, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory... And his disciples believed in him. So the miracle showed who Jesus was, his glory. 
And as a result, the disciples believed in him. Then when you come to chapter 6, verse 69, Peter affirms, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But then you come to chapter 11 and verse 15, and Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that is, not there when Lazarus died. Why? So that you may believe. Well, weren't they already believing? Yeah. But they needed to believe more. And they needed to believe more. And then Martha, she confesses her faith in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, I have believed that you're the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. But then in chapter 40, Jesus challenges her and says, didn't I say if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So faith is initial and it's ongoing. And you need to apply this to yourself. As I said, I hope most of you have done this, but there may be somebody here who has never yet put your trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior you need for your sin. That's where you begin a relationship with God, is by trusting in Jesus Christ personally. But you don't stop there. You don't say, yeah, I did that when I was a kid at camp or something. No, you go on believing in Christ. And how does your faith grow? It grows as you see more and more of Jesus' glory as revealed in the Gospels, as revealed in all of the Bible. And as you see his glory more and more, your faith grows more and more in him. Um, He told Martha here, I am the resurrection and the life. I think she said, yes, I believe that. But did she believe it? Well, she really believed it when she saw him call forth Lazarus from the tomb. And I've had that experience. Yeah, yeah, I believe that, you know. Read it in the Bible. I believe it. And then something happens in my life where I see God doing it, and I really believe it. You know what I mean? And you grow in faith in that way. So Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He took on human flesh. He died on the cross for our sin. And we believe in him at salvation. We go on believing in him as we grow. And this miracle shows us that Jesus can do what no mere man can do. Religion could not call Lazarus from the tomb. All religion could do is go to Mary and Martha and say, we're terribly sorry. And they could console her, but they couldn't raise her brother. The Jewish leaders could not raise Lazarus from the tomb. In fact, if even if modern medicine was dialed back 20 centuries, they would have been of no help here. I know there have been cases where somebody's pronounced dead and then they're raised again. They haven't been dead for four days. You know, if their body's beginning to decompose, modern medicine is helpless. They say, call the coroner. You know, it's time for the the graveside service. But what man cannot do, God can do. And Jesus speaks the word and Lazarus comes to life. And so this miracle illustrates our own insufficiency and the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Now again, and I'm speaking personally here, I subscribe to that on paper and I know you do too. I am insufficient He is all-sufficient. But how do I operate my daily life? Yeah, I can handle it. You know, 
And, and so I resort to prayer when I get in over my head. But most of the time, I can handle it. And that means I don't pray as I should. I don't believe what Jesus said in John fifteen five. Apart from me, you can do not a little bit, not your daily routine. You can do nothing. You can do nothing. One of the best books I've read on prayer, I, I've had it on the book table, is uh, Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. And he's discussing in part of that book the uh, prayer life of Jesus. And he makes this comment. If you know that you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes complete sense. You can't do life on your own. Then prayer makes complete sense. And he goes on to devote a chapter to learning to be helpless. But the point is, when we recognize, Lord, I I can't prepare sermons and preach sermons every week. Lord, I can't witness to my neighbor. I, I can't even do my job. Lord, apart from you, I can't even take my next breath. I can't eat my food. You know, Lord, I am dependent on you and everything. Until we recognize that, we're, we're going to be more prayerless than we should be, not praying in everything. And so it is our recognition of our insufficiency, of his all-sufficiency, that helps us to pray. One of my favorite biographies, and I've read multiple ones on him, is Hudson Taylor, great pioneer missionary in the 19th century, went to China, and then wasn't content to stay on the coast of China like other missionaries. He wanted to go inland, so he founded the China Inland Mission. Many, many harrowing experiences, but Hudson Taylor said this, All God's giants have been weak men, who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. So the story is uh, a story about believing in Jesus Christ so that we will see God's glory. And it would be nice if I could say, well, that's it. Let's go home. But that's not all the story is about. The story also is a contrast And it's a warning against seeing God's mighty works and not believing. And so we've got to look at the other side of it. And that is that seeing a miracle and yet not believing results in further hardening of heart. And this story is a case study in the frightening nature of unbelief. Three lessons here. First of all, Unbelief is not based on insufficient evidence. You know, people say, just give me more evidence. Well, that's not exactly what we need to believe. What further proof could anyone want that Jesus is God than for him to stand at the tomb of a man dead four days, call his name out, and the man comes forth alive from the tomb? Uh, I mean, I'm sure that those who were there were just aghast. It must have been a frightening experience, to be honest. Like I said, like a horror movie. Here comes the corpse walking out of the tomb, and he is fully alive. And yet, remarkably, verse 46 tells us that some did not believe, but they went away to the Pharisees and reported what Jesus had done, not as a witness, 
but so that they could plan to execute Jesus. Now, this wasn't the first miracle that these critics had seen. They, in chapter 5, had seen the man by the pool of Bethesda there who had been lame 38 years. Jesus spoke, get up. He got up and walked. They had seen the man born blind who had sat begging by the temple all of his life. And Jesus told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He washed and he saw. Now, Jesus did both of those miracles on the Sabbath. And so that caused them to say, he can't be of God because He's violating our Sabbath rules. But this miracle, Jesus did it. There's no record it was on the Sabbath. He just did it. And yet, their unbelief said, no, we can't believe this miracle. And they reject Jesus. And you know, the same thing is true today. People will say, oh, give me some evidence. Well, here you go. Have you read the Bible? It's full of fulfilled prophecies. I mentioned to you several weeks ago, do the odds, do the math on the odds that these prophecies could be fulfilled at random. It's staggering. Over 300 of them about Jesus that he fulfilled, many other prophecies. Uh, We have the eyewitness account of Jesus' teaching and of his miracles right here in front of us in print. We have the evidence of the empty tomb that Jesus was risen from the dead and Part of the proof of that is his followers who had first doubted it, believed it, and went out and all of them suffered. And most of them gave their lives on their their belief that Jesus was risen bodily from the dead. We have the evidence. That's not the issue. And beyond all of that, you got the evidence right under your nose. And that is, look at your body. Your body is intricately designed. It did not happen by chance out of pond scum over billions of years. I guarantee you. And, you know, even evolutionists will talk about the the balance of the ecosystem. Well, hello. If it's balanced, it's all together at once. See, if it evolved, it wouldn't be balanced, would it? You would have insects eating all the plants before birds came along to eat insects. you got to have the whole thing at once for it to be balanced. And the evidence is overwhelming for design. You do not see an automobile and go, whoa, billions of years, look at that thing. You know, it all came together, didn't it? No, you say somebody designed that deliberately. And we have that evidence, and yet, as Paul says in Romans 1, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They love their sin. A second lesson here about unbelief, then, is the the cause of unbelief is selfish interests. It's based on selfishness. I want my way... I want to live my life the way I choose. I want to be the captain of my faith, the master of my soul, and I don't want God ruling over me. That's the heart of unbelief. We see it here in two groups, and they represent two kinds of unbelief. First of all, you've got Caiaphas and all of the chief priests and the Pharisees, and the reason for their unbelief is pretty clear in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, 
and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, they had a vested interest in the system as it was. They all had a comfy position, a position of respect among the people, social status, and a pretty good income out of the temple business. And they believed, or they feared, that if people believe in Jesus as Messiah, then the Romans are going to step in and destroy our nation. The irony is, they killed their Messiah, and as a result of that, God's judgment came on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Titus, the Roman general, came in, leveled the city, wiped out the temple, scattered the Jews that survived. Most of them were killed. And Israel, as a nation, ceased to exist for 1,900 years. Uh, Caiaphas this high priest, he was a shrewd and calculating politician. And so first, he discredits his opponents by saying flatly, verse 49, you know nothing at all. And then in verse 50, he postures himself as, my concern is the people. You know, what a phony. My concern is for the people. What he says is, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And what he means is, If we really care for our nation, guys, we need to eliminate this rabble-rouser Jesus. So let's get rid of him, and, you know, we'll posture it as we care about the nation. No, he didn't. He cared about his own position. And uh, then John shows the irony that Caiaphas, unwittingly as high priest, is making a prophecy that's true on a deeper level. And that is that Jesus would die for the nation, and in verse 52, not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John is referring there to us, the Gentiles. He's referring to God's elect who have not yet come to salvation, that through his death, Jesus would reach out to all the nations, as we see in the book of Revelation. There will be some from every tongue and tribe and people and nation there before the throne. And uh, it's the same thing, remember, in Acts 18. Paul's in Corinth, and he's afraid. And the Lord appears to him at night and says, Go on preaching. Don't be silent. And then in Acts 18.10, the Lord says to Paul, For I have many people in this city. And Paul was probably going, You do? All I see is a bunch of pagan idolaters, immoral people. And the Lord said, no, I have many people in this city. He was referring to his elect, whom he would save, as Paul preached the gospel. And Paul preached, and the church in Corinth was born. Uh, You see the same thing in Jesus' words in John 6, 39. He said, this is the will of him who sent me, and you can know that the will of God will be accomplished, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So of all that God ordained would be saved through Jesus, Jesus will save and he will not lose a single one of them. They'll be raised up on the last day. The lesson for us is this. You cannot frustrate the purpose of God. God has a sovereign purpose to save his people and the Iraqi army can move in and slaughter off people And all kinds of world events can make it look like God's going to lose. But the Bible is clear. God will win. His purpose will be established. 
you know, there's much I confess in the book of Revelation I do not understand, but I do get the big idea. The big idea of the book of Revelation is God is going to win big, and you better be on his side when he does. Because if you aren't, you're going to get judged. And that is very, very clear in that last book of the Bible. A second group of people here gives us a second lesson, and that is the common people. They're down in verses 55 to 57. They go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and these people are not openly hostile toward Jesus. They're kind of neutral. They aren't committed to follow him, uh, but they're curious onlookers. And so they go up for their festival And uh, they get in a discussion. Do you think he'll come to the feast? Nah, I don't know. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I do. And so they're discussing it like current events, you know. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. It's kind of interesting. And they have their curious discussion about Jesus. But the point is, they weren't like the Pharisees and the chief priests opposed to him. But neither were they committed followers of him. And uh, so their interest was in protecting themselves because the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders, if anybody knows where he is, you better tell us. And as we saw in chapter 9, if you don't tell us, we're going to put you out of the synagogue. And these people didn't want to go there, so they're just having these little discussions. But they're loyal to the leaders, and they're just going through their religious ceremony. And the lesson for us in this is this. To be neutral about Jesus is to be unbelieving. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You must get on board with him, and if you're not on board with him, you're against him. And sadly, again, their self-centeredness is at the heart of their neutrality. They don't want to get on the bad side of the chief priest, and so they don't say anything, you know, positive about Jesus. They don't commit themselves to him. And the result of all of it is Jesus withdraws. And that's a bad thing when Jesus withdraws from you. The third lesson here then is this, that even devoutly religious people can be unbelieving. There's an ironic warning in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Do you see the irony of that verse? Here are religious pilgrims. And they're going up to the temple to purify themselves, to go through the Passover. And yet, because they fear the leaders, they're not going to take a stand for Jesus because they're afraid that they'll get kicked out of the religious system, out of the synagogue. And so they aren't openly hostile toward Jesus. They wouldn't want to kill him. But at the same time, they're passive. And so they stand by while the religious leaders kill Jesus. And so, really, they are opposed to Jesus. Now, I hope that doesn't describe anybody here. Because what we're talking about here in modern terms is good church-going folks. These were good Jews. They kept the festival. They went up to, quote, purify themselves. It would be like, well, I go to church every week. I take communion. You know, I'm a committed churchgoer. Yeah, but are you committed to Jesus? 
so that when it costs you, you stand for him. That's the point. So let me conclude with a warning from Scripture, Hebrews 3.12. Notice the first three words of the warning. Take care, brethren. This is addressed to religious people. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Up in verse 47, the uh, Jewish leaders ask a question. It's rhetorical. What are we doing? That What they mean is, what are we doing about this problem of this man, Jesus, this miracle worker who's upsetting our system? And their conclusion was, well, we got to kill him. But it's a good question to ask yourself. What am I doing about Jesus? And you have three options. I hope none of you take the first. You oppose him. That's what they're doing. I don't think anyone here would do that. The second is a little more potential for us. And that is that you're like the people. Hey, what do you think? You know, I got an interesting view on Jesus. What's your view? But you're not committed. That's what the author of Hebrews is warning against. And the third option, of course, is that you believe in him as your Savior and Lord that you take a stand with him, even if it means some personal cost, that you follow him as your all in all. But this text is a warning to us. If you see these miracles reported in God's word and you don't believe, you won't stay neutral. You'll get hardened in your unbelief, and you don't want to go there. So let the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus strengthen your faith in him as you see his glory. Father, I pray that you would help us all to not get sucked into neutrality or complacency or just a uh, lukewarm kind of wishy-washy commitment to Jesus, but that we all would be fully sold out to follow you, no matter what the cost. I ask, Lord, if any are here who do not know Jesus in a saving way, you would open their eyes to the truth, you would quicken them from the dead, that they might believe in Jesus this morning as Savior and Lord. I pray in his name. Amen.